If you would turn to Mark chapter 14. So on Friday night here in the room, we'll get together. When we get together, we're going to look at uh, just about all the things that took place during the day on that Friday. We're going to look at most of the stuff this morning that took place on that Thursday night into um, the early morning hours of that Friday. So we're going to read a lot of scripture. Is that okay with everybody? All right. You're going to be nervous. We're going to go from verse 10 to verse 65, but I promise we got through. I finished actually early in the first service, so, um, but I don't have a third service, so I can go long. But anyway, just kidding. All right. So I want to talk about just these last hours um, of Christ's life. As we look at these last hours, he is not taking a nap. He's not resting. Um, they're actually quite busy. There are a lot of things that are happening and take place and very significant moments happening um, as these hours wind down. And so I want to talk about Judas first and I want to talk about um, him being the pretender. Um, and let's look at verse 10 and verse 11 of Mark chapter 14. So then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Just about every time that we see the name Judas mentioned in the scripture, we are reminded that he is the one who betrayed Jesus or he is literally called a traitor. He is the only one also among the 12 that was not from Galilee Galilee was in the northern part of Israel. He was from the southern part, and so there's probably likely, just as there things are here, he would have been a little bit of an outsider of the group as well because he was not from the same region that they were in. This probably manifested itself at times when they were living in the flesh. If you remember much about the 12, they kind of sometimes did that. And so he probably was a little bit outsider in regard um, to where he was from. In the end, Judas was an epic failure as a disciple. He saw the same miracles. He was involved in the same ministries. He was around the same teaching that Jesus gave. And yet he never came to saving faith in Christ. He died lost and separated from him. The rest of the 12, the 11, were converted during their time of walking with Jesus, but not so Judas. He seemed to... As things got to an end and probably toward the end, his heart grew more calloused and indifferent to Jesus. And at the end, he was very easily willing to betray the Lord. The other 11 were just common men like Judas was as well, but they were used by God to do extraordinary kind of things. Judas serves for us as a stark reminder, though he was of them, of the dangers of wasted opportunities to be in and around the gospel, in in and around the message of the gospel, to even participate in ministry, but to waste the opportunities to never come around to believing in Jesus. They've been remind us this morning of the things that he saw. All around Judas for three years, the lame walked, the blind saw, the deaf were able to hear. Lepers who had their skin and fingers and, and things with leprosy where skin began to just grow over and 
um, had fresh skin and they looked completely as they were before leprosy. On a consistent basis, Judah saw this happen over and over again. He was there when people possessed by demons were cast out by Jesus and people were now in their right mind. As a matter of fact, if you'll remember, they were sent out twice. Once um, he sent the 12 out two by two. They went out and preached. They cast out demons. They performed miracles. Even Judas was able to do that. And then the 72 went out and, and Judas went out with them. And so he experienced many of the same things. But in the end, Judas couldn't really be distinguished between any of the others who were authentic believers and those who affirmed Jesus, though he did not. And while he was an epic failure as a disciple, he was the most successful hypocrite of all time. So much so that even the other 11 um, that we'll read about here in a moment, when Jesus says on the night in the upper room that one of you is going to betray me, when they looked around the room... The last person they thought would be that was Judas. He didn't stand out as the one who would be most likely to do this. He lived and hid behind the camouflage of hypocrisy, but no one but Jesus realized it until the very end. We know that eventually among the twelve, he seemed to have gotten to a place where he seemed like a trustworthy person. If you remember in John chapter 12, he was the one that was entrusted to keep the money So that as they traveled around and went places, he would have money to go buy things or to give to the poor, um, which we get an indication there from John chapter 12 that that they would do this as well. And so we learn in John 12 that he used to, from time to time, stick his hand in the money and keep some for himself and use it to benefit himself. He ended up being the only unbeliever among the 12. And this is a clear reminder to you and I today. Maybe you may be thinking of a family member or or someone else. Is that it's hard to really know the true condition of those that are in and around us. The other disciples never suspected what was going on in the heart of Judas. They didn't know until the end that he had betrayed the Lord and rejected him. And it may be along the way Judas had convinced himself that all was well in his faith. That everything was okay. We can do that, you know trick ourselves, convince ourselves that things are in a better place than what they are. But I want to remind us this morning that our heart is desperately deceitful and can fool ourselves. The prophet Jeremiah writes this about our heart in 17.9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Judas's life challenges our lives for sure. And reminds us to take an examination to see if we are in the family and we have come to saving faith. With Christ, he was for three years. Christ came to reveal the glory of the Father. And so in every miracle, in every parable Jesus gave, in every sermon, in every healing, in every act of compassion, all of it was designed to reveal his identity to men and to people, and to women, and to children. The eleven got it. Judas never did. And though Jesus tried to touch his heart, he even tries to touch his heart one last time on this night, Judas rejects this and hardened his heart over time against Jesus in every attempt that the Lord tried to reach him. 
Some people have a hard time imagining the idea that he could go out and do the things that he did, be around Jesus for three years and ultimately not believe. They have a hard time with that. But I think if you, you and I just look around, it's not really that hard to believe it. There are people who live in churches in a sense by being there all the time, live under the preaching, listen to the prayers, look around at a church and see the transformation that God does in the lives of others. And yet at the end, they never come to faith in Christ. And they die lost and separated just as Judas was. For many of, in Jesus' time and in Judas's day, he was like many others who wanted the Messiah to rescue Israel and establish the kingdom of Israel once again. He never saw the purpose of Jesus coming to establish a spiritual kingdom. He wanted Israel to be restored once again. And so um, toward the end, it was really clear to Judas that Jesus was not coming to do that. He was talking over and over again that he was going to die. He was going to rise again and things were going to be different. And so in the end, he didn't like the plan, didn't like the purpose. And so his heart had grown so cold. And even on this night, we know this in John chapter 13, we saw this several months ago, that Satan himself literally enters the body of Jesus as he betrays and ends up being just so separated from the Lord. He never embraced the spiritual kingdom of Christ. So what do we learn from Jesus? What do we learn about him? What is it about him that we can see um, that you and I need to examine in regard to our own lives? Let me give two things and then we'll move on and read a little bit more uh, in verse 13. Here's the first thing that we can learn about Judas. It is not enough just to be in and around the gospel. It doesn't mean that somebody's going to automatically come to faith. So we want to, as parents, we want to teach our children the truth. We want to tell them the stories. We want to model what the gospel is like, but that's not a guarantee that things are going to happen. And so Judas was around the most important person who's ever lived on the earth. He was around that, and yet he didn't believe. It's not proximity to Jesus that matters most. It is personal faith in Jesus. The second thing we learn about Judas in regard to the danger of this is that though he tried to change the mission of Christ and he wanted Christ to restore Israel, that there's not anybody ever who can stop the purpose of Jesus. Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom, to establish the church, and there wasn't anything that he could do to stop Jesus from doing this. So we see in Mark 14 that there's the pretender who had been in around the gospel, the heart of the gospel, the living gospel, the person of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, and yet never believed. Let's look next, if you would, in verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 16. On the first day of the unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And whenever and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. 
Well, the Jews had been doing the Passover over and over. There's a period of time, a long period of time, where they didn't do it, and they reinstituted back again um, with Josiah. When they were in exile, they were not able to be in the temple and to be um, together um, for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. But, but now for a while, they had been practicing this. Jesus made a practice of this as well. He would have grown up going to Jerusalem. He would have grown up in Nazareth where they would have practiced um, the Passover. And so here on this night, he's continuing to do something that he has done his 30-something years that he was here. And can you imagine being these disciples going into the town? It's interesting. Uh, I find it very fascinating. Okay, when you go into the city, you're going to see a guy. He's carrying a jar. He's going to enter in the house. So you follow him in there. You're going to meet him, follow him, go inside. Somebody's going to own that house. And you're going to ask that the person of the house, okay, where can the master, the teacher, where can he um, come to have the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread? And so there's an interesting thing. I don't know if you knew this or not, that when God says to do something and we do it, you know what happens? It seems to come true. He seems to bless what happens there. And this is exactly what happens with these guys. And so they come and they meet and they they begin to get things ready for the Passover. I want to remind us of the significance of this going all the way back to the book of Exodus. Chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12 gives us the instructions of this. We're not going to go there, but let let me just remind us. But if you want to read it, it's in Exodus chapter 12. So the regulations for the Passover are found there. Every family was to choose a lamb which was to be killed on the evening of the Passover. They were to take the blood of the lamb. They were to dip, dip it in hyssop. And they were to, to mark the doorposts of their home in Egypt with the blood. They would continue to do this as well in the years ahead. They were to roast the lamb, not boil it and cook it in any other way. And they were to eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And they were also to eat the milk. Dressed for a journey. They were to have their shoes on. They were to have their walking sticks ready to go and eat it as if they were in a hurry because that's exactly what happened when Pharaoh eventually said, okay, go get out of here. They ate it. He let them go and they left in a hurry. Now, after the original Passover, the Jews began to continue to celebrate this. There's some interesting things that they began to do. So let me just... This is the order of the meal in which they would do. They would, they would drink a cup of red wine that was mixed with water. Then they would have a ceremonial washing of their hands that symbolized their spiritual need for cleansing, spiritual cleansing. Then they would eat the bitter herbs that reminded them and symbolized their bondage and slavery in Egypt. Then the head of the house would explain the meaning of the Passover and remind them and tell the original story and what God had done and, and, and what God would continue to do. And then they would sing. They would sing the first two of the Halal Psalms in Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. And then the lamb would be brought out. The head of the household would distribute the pieces of it with unleavened bread to the people that were there. The unleavened bread, again, symbolized haste in a hurry. There was no time for the, for the dough to rise. And so they... They made the bread quickly, symbolizing that they would need to leave quickly. And then they would cl- conclude the meal by singing the rest of the Psalms 115 to 118. And so Jesus on this night practices this again, but he's going to add, he's going to change things. He's going to institute the new covenant and he's going to talk about some interesting things. So let's look at the third thing. Look at verse 17 and let's read through 21 now. And when it was evening... 
he came with the twelve to this house that had gotten prepared by the other disciples. And they were reclining at table and eating. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is the one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I want to talk now just for a moment about the problem that's in the room. So again, I want to remind us of the significant things these men had seen over three years. Living with God in a body doing incredible, miraculous work, teaching, asking him questions, really knowing him, laughing with him, experiencing such such depth of, of God's presence that had never really been seen before. Probably only Moses, as Moses would go into the tabernacle and God would come down and Moses would meet with God face to face. These guys are meeting with God in a way that even Moses didn't. He's with them and they're living with them and experiencing him. And now on this night, there's a serious tone that he's had over these weeks. He's been talking about coming to Jerusalem for this Passover and what's going to happen. And now he drops a bomb in their lap and says, one of you guys tonight is going to betray me. And they begin to look around the room. And then they begin to, he pronounces this to them. This is what's going to happen. One of you is going to betray me. And they begin to look around the room and they're astonished about it. They look at one another and they can't imagine that anybody in the room would do such a thing. They even look at Judas. They don't think Judas would do that. But Judas knows what's going on, and only two people in the room really know what's going on, and that's Jesus and Judas. And they're astonished by this. And they all began, the Scripture says, to say to him, Lord, are you talking about me? And each one of them began to ask him that question. If you remember in John 13, Peter seems to be sitting kind of maybe on the other side of the table, and he motions to John and says, John, ask him who he's talking about. And so in John 13, 21, this is what it says. So after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain. Listen to what it says. Uncertain of whom he spoke. They couldn't imagine that this would take place. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Now look up here just for a moment. They used to do this. They would lean. I've shared this with you before. Let me just remind you. They would lean on their left arm, and there would be a table. It wasn't high off the ground, and they would eat like this with their right arm. So John is right here. Judas is on the other side of Jesus. So John's here. He can lean his head back um, on the heart of Jesus. Jesus can lean his head back on the heart of Judas. So that's, that's what's happening here. And so one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, this is John, said to him, Lord, who is it? Who are you talking about? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. 
So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, listen to what the scripture says here. Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag. And Jesus was telling him, go and buy things for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. This bread that was given, there was a, there was a bowl that was there. It was kind of like what you and I would call jam, fruit jam. It was mixed with things and you would take the bread and you would dip it in this and you would give it to someone at the mill and it was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of I'm honoring you, I'm reaching out to you, I'm letting you know that I love you. And so Jesus reaches with that bread, he, he dips it into this fruit mixture and he hands it to them. It's called sop, it doesn't sound real appetizing, sop, but that's what it was called. And so he would dip it into the sop and watch this one last time. One last time on this night, Jesus reaches out in grace to Judas. He offers the best portion to his enemy, the one that was about to betray him. Now, in just hours, Christ's arms will be outstretched and his body will be nailed to the cross. Guess what he's doing? He is dying for his enemies. And so he exhibits great grace in this one last effort reaching out to Judas on this night. Judas rejects it. Satan enters him. And yet this is the beauty of God's grace. Nobody in here deserved deserved salvation. Nobody then deserved salvation. But in God's great work, because God loves the way God loves, He extends mercy and grace to people like you and I. And so even on this night, one last time, He offered His life to Judas and friendship to Judas. Judas rejects it, and yet on the cross, He offers His life to His betrayers. And that is why it is amazing. So on this night, there's a problem in the room. Jesus makes this announcement. One of y'all are going to betray me. They are astonished and surprised. They can't imagine this. And then Jesus makes one last appeal to Judas. Now look with me in verse 22. And let's read through 25. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I want to talk about now the picture of Jesus and what we know as the Lord's Supper, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And I want to talk about the bread first. And I want to talk about probably what he did in regard to um, the Passover tradition. And then how he changed things and instituted something new on this night. He came to fulfill the law. He didn't. Um, and so he's, he's likely going to affirm what had been done all along. But now he's going to change it. Then moving forward, is going to have a new identity and a new understanding of things. And so when it came time to serve the bread, um, usually the host in the room 
would say something like this most often. They would say, they would take the bread, they would break it, and they would say, Be praised, O Lord, sovereign of the world, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. That was the traditional statement that was made. But on this night, Jesus likely says this, but then he's going to change something. He's going to, he's going to give a new meaning. He says this, take this, eat it. This is my body. So on this night, he equates the unleavened bread with his body. Now I want to talk about his body for a moment because this is a fascinating reality, this body that Jesus had. So 33 years earlier, somewhere around in there, we're guessing, we think he lived about 33 years. The bread of life came down from heaven and was born in the city of Bethlehem, which, by the way, means house of bread. He was born in a body, God was. He took on flesh. Everything that Jesus did on the earth, he did in that body. That body was small. That body was a toddler size. That body was an elementary age size. It was a teenager size. And then he became an adult. Everything he did while he was here, he did in that body. He played in it as a kid. He washed it. He put food and water in it. He lived in it. He slept in it. He preached in it. He worked miracles in that body. And eventually he would die for our sin and bear in his body our sin. He would rise in that body. He would ascend to heaven in that body. He will return again in that body. And when we see Him in heaven, we will see Him in that body and it will still bear the scars. This is quite the important body that He was given. The one that He will always have. Luke records what Jesus did on this night in Luke twenty-two nineteen. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So He's moving things from the Old Testament perspective of of the unleavened bread and the hurried of haste. And now he's saying, here's the reality. This represents my body that is going to be laid down for you on the cross. So Jesus used the bread on this night to teach his disciples and us what he was about to do on the cross. Let me remind us what he was about to do on the cross. Isaiah, about 700 years earlier, wrote these words. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds that were on His body, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on that body the iniquity of us all. And so on this night, Jesus wants his men, he wants to remind us this morning in this teaching to to be reminded that his body was more important than a piece of unleavened bread. This was God who would come to lay his life down. And if the only way that you and I could have salvation is to take and eat what he did, to internalize it, to put it on the inside of our lives. That's why in John chapter 6, if you remember, he gives this great teaching. He speaks about that he's the bread who's come down of heaven. This is on the hills of the previous day where he had fed about 20,000 people with fish and bread. They find him the next day because they're like, okay, that's pretty awesome. This guy's the bread giver. 
And on that day, Jesus says, no, it's not about the manna from the wilderness. It's not even about what I did yesterday. Here's the thing. You've got to take me and you've got to eat me and you've got to drink. You've got to internalize. I must come into your life. And when that happens, you come into relationship and you are saved. That's why he said on this night, take and eat. We must receive what he did for us. We must internalize what he did on the cross. And for those who believe what Jesus did and what he accomplished when his body was broken, they will be saved. On Friday night in this room, when we gather together, we're going to participate in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And I hope on Friday night there's a freshness after we look at what we're looking at today when you come to the table. The Corinthian church was messed up at times, and particularly in regard to their perspective of the Lord's Supper. So Paul wrote to them about the blessing that is connected to this. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. He said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We are partakers of his life. This is what it means to be in him. We just quoted a while ago. This is eternal life. That what? That we know him, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. We have to take him in. And when we come to the table, this is a significant moment, spiritual moment, where we are worshiping Him, that God came in a body, He bore our sin, and so when we eat that bread, we want to eat it recognizing the wonder that has been done for us in God's grace, that He came to bear our sin. Let's talk about the cup now. So, traditional Jewish Passover Um, There would be a cup, it would be full of wine mixed with water, it would be lifted up, and then the head of the household would say something like this, May the all-merciful one who makes us worthy of the days of the Messiah and of the life of the world to come, he brings the salvation of his king. He shows covenant faithfulness to his anointed, to David and his seed forever. He makes peace in His heavenly places. May He secure peace for us and for all Israel. And the people of the household, when that was done, would say, Amen. And so most likely Jesus said something like that. But on this night, He changes things. He adds a new identity to this. And He says this, This this that I'm holding up is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many. So he equated the wine on this night to his own blood. Now, younger generation in the room are going to go, what? You can YouTube it this afternoon, okay? So I remember as a kid, my parents were into I Love Lucy. And there's an episode in I Love Lucy, if you've ever seen that before, where um, Lucy's at a place and they've picked grapes and... They're put in this thing and they walk around crushing the grapes and it's a funny scene. 
But that's the picture of what happened. And I, I, I want you to see the significance of this. So when we come to the table on Friday night, please have this in our minds. We must have this in our mind. So the grapes are picked from the vine. They were put in something like that, and people trampled on the grapes. And as they walked on the grapes and continued to crush them, the grape juice would flow out. They would eventually be juiced, and they would make that into wine. I want to remind us that on this night and on the next day, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed. He was trampled by sinful men and their hatred of him as he bore our sin. So when we come to the table on Friday night, when we come to the table at the 1st of May and June and for the rest of our faith life, we must never forget that the body of Jesus is so significant for us. He bore our sin. And as his blood was poured out, we are to be reminded that he was crushed for our iniquities, that his blood flowed for us. Paul wrote it in this way. Let me remind us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake, and praise his name for this reality, for our sake, he, the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But I want to remind us something that we do not misinterpret the meaning of this verse. Jesus did not become a sinner. God does not sin. He doesn't become a a sinner. He bears our sin in His body as the Passover lamb on the cross. He was not in any way committing sin as He became sin for us on our behalf. The sin was placed on Him, and He bore our sin in His body. So I remind us this morning that He was crushed, and His precious blood was shed as He was crushed. And when His blood was shed, the Father was satisfied. And now all those who believe for Christ and salvation, their sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. They are instantly brought into relationship with Him. He takes the righteousness of Christ and applies it to the undeserving sinner. And the undeserving sinner has God take their sin and it's placed on Christ as he bears our sin. This is applied to us. We don't apply it. God applies the righteousness of Christ to us. Is it not amazing today when we think about the significance of this work that God has done? Nobody could earn this. He willingly lays his life down to be crushed on our behalf and to bear our sin. So this is what we remember every time we take the cup of communion and we take the bread and we take it in. It reminds us, watch, watch. We are to take him in. This is an internal relationship, internal, inside of us. This is not works we work but not to earn we take him in because only one work happens and that's the body and the blood of Jesus I love what happens next look at verse 26 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They may remind us, you know what Christians are to do when they gather? They are to sing. We are to sing. And we are to sing to Him and, and worship Him. Let's look at 26 through 31 now. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Bless you, Peter. Bless us. We're like him. Even though they all fall away, I will not. How do you think that statement went over? Think, Lord, everybody, Jesus, everybody else here, I get it that they probably aren't going to be like that, but I won't. They, they, they may, but I'm not going to. Even if they all fall away, Lord, I'm not going to do that. And so look at 30. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let me just touch on a a few things here that I think are important. So a prophecy is fulfilled or it's stated. It's written from one of the minor prophets um, that the shepherd will be struck. They will flee and run away from him on this night. He also gives a prophetic word again that he's been talking about, that he will die, he will be raised again. And he also tells Peter, Peter, man, in just a few short hours, you're going to really go through the ringer. It's going to be a tough night for you, Peter. Earlier, we know from one of the other Gospels that Satan had asked to sift Peter specifically. He had been in the crosshairs of what the enemy wanted to do to him. And they will all flee. Verse 50 of Mark 40, Mark 14 tells us that, that they will, as they arrest Jesus, they will run away. So I ask a question. Let me ask this question. What happened? You've got the best discipler in the history of the world investing himself in three years in 11 men, 12 men, One takes money, and then 11 flee. What happens? How does that happen? Let me give you three things real brief, what you and I need to be careful of in our faith. The first one is this. It's called pride. They had pride. There's a lot of pride there. They didn't think that they could fall. There's no way that I can fall. They believed that they were above all of that falling away. The fact is, even the best of all of us or any of us in the room this morning, we are only one heartbeat away if we do not stay connected to Jesus of denying the Lord and casting aside our faith. A second thing that we need to be careful of is self-deception. Sometimes we convince ourselves that we love Jesus more than anything. Lord, I will not do that. I'm not going to be like anybody else. I'm the one that's going to remain faithful. And we, again, can self-deceive ourselves of how strong we are. And so that's why we must continually submit our lives to Him. And here's the third thing, and it's what Peter experienced, and they all experienced. They were fearful. 
fear entered in their lives. These men were confident that they would go with Jesus all the way to death, but they were brought face to face with the power of fear, and they end up turning away. Fear has caused many of God's children throughout the centuries to back away from their testimony. Fear has caused many, caused many to be silent when we should speak up. Fear has caused some to just fall in with a crowd and pretend about things. Fear magnifies sometimes the power that Satan has over us in convincing us that God doesn't have enough power to free us. Never underestimate the power of fear. But I remind us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, right? That's what Paul says. We have been given a spirit of discipline and power and love by God himself. Look with me now in 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain and watch. And going on a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said in 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? I want to stop there just for a moment. How long has he been praying? He tells us. How long has he been praying and pleading? An hour. This is an intense hour, pleading with the Father. I want you to notice this. Don't miss this. The the pressure in Gethsemane is overwhelming. He looks into the cup that the Father has asked him to drink. All of it. Note, a while ago, take this and eat this. You must internalize me. Now what's he asking? What's the Father asking Jesus to do? He must internalize the Father's will for him. He must drink the full cup of the wrath of the Father. He must drink it. And yet as he looks into the cup, he is overwhelmed. And for an hour, he pleads with the Father. Is there a way for this cup to pass? And yet he gets to the place of settled obedience. Father, not what I want. What you want is most important. All right, let's look again at 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and he prayed and sang the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want to highlight just a couple of things here and, and then we'll read the rest of this for today. When it says that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled, this Greek word is a fascinating Greek word. It has such depth of meaning. This, this word, distressed and troubled, when you put them together or when they are there, it means 
terrified surprise. So I want, I want, I want us to see, again, why when we approach the Lord's table, that it is important that we approach the Lord's Supper in soberness and worship. Yes, celebrating what has been done for us. Jesus knew why he came. Would we agree with that? That he was going to die. He's God. He's all-knowing. And yet in this moment, when he looked into the cup, he was terrified by the surprise of the weight of the significance about what he was about to do as he looked at it. He was going to bear the sin of man. And in the moment... It so terrified him that he says the words that my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He had the feeling in the moment that he would even die just considering and looking at what was being asked of him by the Father there in the garden. This phrase, to be overwhelmed with sorrow, is where we get our English word periphery, which means things that are around us, surrounded us. He says here in the garden, I am surrounded by sorrows as I look at what the Father has asked me to do. And I am sorrowful even to the point of death here in the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, it is possible for people to die of anguish. It happens. And Jesus felt the weight of that in the garden. So the intensity of the moment is deeper than you and I can ever imagine. But I want you to notice the settled obedience of his prayer. As he concluded his prayer, he expressed his absolute obedience to the Father's will. He would drink it. So he says the words, I will and what you will. And they let us know that the time of true testing for him was real and he would drink it and he would win the victory. Look with me in 43 now. We got a lot of reading to do here. Let's do this as we finish up. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And when they laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. 51 and 52, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But when we left the linen cloth, he ran away naked. 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And son began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let me share just a few more things as we finish. I love what it says here. Jesus was willing to take the cup. John 18, 4, which we'll look at two weeks from now when we get back into John says that Jesus went out to meet them. He didn't run away. He went out to meet them. And when he does say, I am, they fall down. They just fall backwards on the ground. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But the wrestling of the garden is over with now. He rises. He steps out to meet those that have come to arrest him. He's going to embrace and drink drink the cup. And it now begins. He knows everything that's going to happen. And he faces it all with great courage. And even though Jesus told them who he was, Judas still came and kissed him on the cheek. Now, I've lived in Europe, um, been around a lot of Middle Eastern people and Eastern people, and kissing on the cheek was an interesting experience for this Texas boy when I moved there. To have men come up and kiss me three times on the cheek and embrace me, but I grew to love the practice and the 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 friendship that's connected with it. Now, back in the day, in Jesus' time, it wasn't uncommon to come to somebody to show them honor by kissing them on the hand or taking the hem of their garment and you would bow and you would kiss um, kiss the part of the garment that they, they wore. It wasn't as common then to kiss as Judas does on this night. It's not that it didn't happen, but it wasn't as common as the others. But I want you to notice what the betrayer does, who, by the way, is inhabited by Lucifer himself. He comes and stands eye to eye, face to face, inches away, and he kisses Jesus on the cheek. And I imagine Satan inside of Judas on this night is like, I'm going to win. And he's not going to win, and he did not win. He's crushed. Because our King Jesus is the victorious one. And on this night, Jesus begins to accept the reality that he is the lamb that's led to slaughter. So let me remind us again of the prophet Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. One last lesson about Judas that I think is important to point out here, and that is a warning of the great dangers of hypocrisy, of pretending to follow. Judas was as close to Christ as anyone who ever lived. He witnessed love and grace in action in everyday instances and moments. He saw the power of God like no one saw the power of God. He heard, he saw, he affirmed the truth at times. And yet Judas died and went to hell because he failed to believe in he who is the way, the truth, and the life. He literally, listen to this, kissed the gates of heaven and ended up being separated from God for all of eternity. So the rest of this night is the priests who should have known who was standing before them, rejected him. And then let's finish with 66 through 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant guards of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you are also with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystander, This man was one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Boy, it doesn't look good right now, does it? There is great news to insert right here because we know the rest of the story. You know what God does? He transforms broken people who in the moment can't confess Jesus or weak and think of themselves. And I have often wondered what the rest of that night was like for Peter sitting all alone in the streets of Jerusalem, thinking back over three years of love, of laughter, life, light shining in his life, and thinking, it's over for me. It's over. And I just would encourage you to read Acts 2 to about Acts 10 and see what God does with people to transform their lives from bold denial to bold proclaimer. He's written two letters. Tomorrow morning in the W4, we start 1 Peter chapter 1. And he's going to talk 
tomorrow about this glorious salvation that he came to know and to proclaim for the rest of his life that he tasted and knew what it was like to experience the glory of Christ. Let's pray.